Hello, and thank you for listening to the MicroBinFi podcast. Here, we will be discussing topics in microbial bioinformatics. We hope that we can give you some insights, tips, and tricks along the way. There is so much information we all know from working in the field, but nobody writes it down. There is no manual, and it's assumed you'll pick it up. We hope to fill in a few of these gaps. My co-hosts are Dr. Nabil Ali Khan and Dr. Andrew Page. I am Dr. Lee Katz. Both Andrew and Nabil work in the Quadrum Institute in Norwich, UK, where they work on microbes in food and the impact on human health. I work at Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and am an adjunct member at the University of Georgia in the US. Hello, and welcome to the MicroBinFi podcast. Andrew and I are your co-hosts today, and we're continuing our series where we examine a particular microbial species in some depth. Today, again, we're going back to mycobacterium tuberculosis, and we're hoping we can discuss some of the specific issues for bioinformaticians to keep in mind when studying this organism. Joining us again, our guests are Dr. Susie Hingley-Wilson, who is a lecturer in bacteriology at the University of Surrey. She works on tuberculosis and her lab focuses on survival and persistence. But we also have Dr. Jani Best, who is a senior lecturer in microbial metabolism at the University of Surrey. She is a bacterial dietitian, so she's interested in what MTB actually eats. And we are also joined by Dr. Connor Meehan, who is an assistant professor in molecular microbiology at the University of Bradford. He specializes in whole genome sequencing and molecular epidemiology of pathogens, particularly mycobacterium tuberculosis, and also does genome-based bacterial taxonomy. So let's start off with Andrew, who wants to tell us about software we've been developing. So I have actually developed software for TB, for uh, bioinformatics software for TB, which is quite a surprise to everyone I know and quite shocking. <laughs> and we, we have a, a tool called Galru, and what it does is spolygotyping uh, on long reads. Originally, though, it was meant to do something totally, totally different. But, you know, we reused the code when we figured out that wouldn't work, and it did work for uh, TB. So thank God, and we have a preprint out of that. So it just shows that you should never throw away a failed project. You can always recycle it in something else. But what it does is it uh, just looks at long reads, does a bit of spolygotyping. It produces some kind of numbers that uh, people who like TB seem to be interested in. I don't know <laughs> much about it, to be quite frank, but I understand there are many other uh, mathematics tools for TB and so maybe Connor can uh, give us an idea of what's going on there, because I know you've written a, a review recently. Yes, well, 40 people wrote that review. I just uh, coordinated them <laughs> and did some of the writing myself. But bioinformatics in TB is very much a field that is changing by the day. TB was very clinician driven for a very, very long time. So what a lot of people think of as being basic biology and basic bioinformatics is kind of coming in at the end and then trying to fit into the systems that we saw before. So Galru, which is a good tool, and I've used it and it's good, I like it. It does spolygotyping on long reads. For people that don't know spolygotyping, it's essentially CRISPRs. It's a presence uh, and absence of spacers in the genome. It's called spolygotyping in TB because it is, but it's essentially CRISPRs. And it's the presence or absence of 23 of these that'll tell you whether it's a certain lineage or something else that's out there. So it's a lot of the tools now are, well, in the clinic, we did it this way. Now, can we get that information from the genome? And then a lot of them were built for the short read one. And now it's moving into the, can we do it with the long reads? But obviously, bioinformatically, 
to a lot of people who are using the tools, they're like, but this is the same, but obviously bioinformatically, we know that this is a completely different program in order to do that. So an example I'll give you is, there's a lot of tools like TB Profiler, Microbe TB, other ones that will do drug resistance from it, but they all start with short reads. So then we have to remake all the tools so they'll work with nanopore reads or something. So TB Profiler will now work on the nanopore read, but a lot of the bioinformatics tools are really, really based around the short reads. You know, we, we use specific SNPs to tell you what lineage it is. We have specific SNPs to tell you what drug resistance it is and all of that. And we got to port all that now to the long reads. So it's been a, a field that's massively exploding outwards. And now a few of us are trying to work to kind of bring it back in line and say, well, here are the things we want from a tool that does this. And the review was really trying to say, what are the, the tasks that we need gen genomic data to do? And then how would we know that a tool is like ticked off to say that it does that thing? What is the database of SNPs you're using? What is the technology you're using? How are you calling a minority variant? Because a minority variant is very different to different people. Some tools say 90% minimum cutoff of the reads at that position to call it the majority. Others say 70. Others then are saying we only need two reads for a minority variant. Other ones are saying five reads. So it's the, we're trying to kind of say, well, here are some standards, you know, the, the rules help control the fun. And that's kind of, yeah, where we're going with the tools at the moment. And so what kind of questions would people like Danny and Susie like to ask of genomics? If you could have anything you wanted, right, uh, to back up your wet lab experiments. Well, I guess one thing I'm quite interested in and I kind of tried to I tried to get a grant funded on this but the MRC weren't as interested as me in it was that question I kind of uh, talked about before which is you know what are the drivers of the evolution of drug resistance really in TB you know what what sort of environmental conditions may drive that to a particular evolutionary trajectory I'm kind of really they've done some really cool stuff on E. coli where you look at different sort of metabolic environments and you see that there's a different evolutionary trajectory and I'm kind of interesting because obviously when you're looking at human it's it's really complicated and you don't know what the different conditions are so I'm kind of I'm, I'm kind of interested in in that sort of basic biology question which may have significance because obviously if you could sort of break that evolution or you know in some manner this might be a an approach to making the drugs last longer with this kind of adjuvant therapy so I'm kind of uh, quite interested in 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 that approach and something else that's very interesting I know Susie's very interesting as well is is these mutations which actually allow strains of TB to survive for longer in the presence of drugs and they might not make them resistant they might just make them more tolerant and then they have the ability to go on to become resistant so those are kind of two things that I kind of wanted to kind of look at and I'm quite interested in so has anyone ever looked at which genes are essential for the life of uh, MTB, like using Tradis or anything like that? Yes, there have been. Yeah, there's, there's some studies by a group in Aberystwyth University who've, um, who've looked at, um, they've used something called Tradis, which uses um, a set of mutants, and then they look at survival. They've looked at uh, Mycobacterium tuberculosis and also Mycobacterium bovis, 
which causes TB in cattle and can also cause TB in, um, in humans. So yeah, that, that, that has been, I mean, that hasn't been published yet. Hopefully, you know, that should come through soon, but that'll be really interesting. But there's there's multiple transposon library mm. screens done in TB and macrophages, and they're starting to do a little bit of macaque models in different, all sorts of different conditions. So there's a lot of information and a lot of arguments actually in the field mm. about, you know, what then constitutes a good drug target. Does it have to be an essential gene? And that to me is always an essential. It's always conditionally essential because I always find that weird. Right. So it's essential for life in a in a lab on the on its, you know, it's not really necessarily going to be what's essential in the host. So there has been a lot of those studies in a variety of different conditions. So, Danny, any else that you'd like to add from your wish list? Well, I guess answering that that question about the evolution, the um, mutation rate of TB would be kind of interesting because I don't think we actually, you know, there, there was a study done where we, we really haven't. Is that connected to growth rate or not? That would be kind of something, the fundamentals that I think would also hasn't been answered in in TB what what is you know what is that mutation rate and how does it differ inside the human body so we have um, a lot of different lineages in TB they don't have fancy variant names like we see in covid it's just 1 to 9 mycobacterium tuberculosis is a species and we refer to it as mycobacterium tuberculosis complex. The diversity that we know of is growing and growing and growing. So up until a few years ago, we only knew of six lineages, then a seventh one came out in Ethiopia. We found one at which we call lineage eight, then in, in Rwanda and Uganda. I was also part of another one that found lineage nine. So it's growing and growing and growing as it go along. Now, some studies have looked at the mutation rates of these different lineages and found that they are slightly different between some of the lineages tend to hover around the 10 to the minus 6, 10 to the minus 7, which is per generation, right? So per replication cycle. But in TB, that is a very slow one. So we tend to average out at about one SNP every three years if it's left by itself. So this makes it very difficult when you do epidemiology because you'll just end up with zero SNPs between two different strains and then you have no idea if they transmitted to each other. What I will say is it seems to from this is using the genome to figure out the mutation rate and the difficulty there is that it's it's more accurate to say that we do near whole genome sequencing because we throw out about 10 percent of the genome at the moment in repetitive regions in so that we have ppe and, and esx genes and stuff like that so we're throwing those out and there may be more mutations that are occurring in there so the mutation rate is not even across the whole genome. It might be that there's more mutations in some sections and less in others. So the genomics is helping us understand that. But because the mutation rate is so slow, we need data sets that go over decades in order to be able to tell that. And those are very, very rare. They're very, very difficult to capture those um, big data sets. So it's coming, but we just need large sequencing over longer periods of time to try to look at that for the mutation rate at least. Can I ask a question then? So mm. what do you say the generation time is? Because that must be a massive fudge, right? So this 10 to the minus 6, 10 to the 7 mutation rate is based on a generation time of what? A day, isn't it, I think? Or yeah, but that's in the lab, right? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I think some from some mice studies, it's also from that. But 
This is the difficulty that we have with mycobacterium tuberculosis is that we don't know as much of the fundamental biology as I think people assume we do. When I came into the field in 2014, I was just like, oh, so we know all these things. And they were like, no, we don't know any of those. I'm like, but this has been around for so long. Having come from the HIV field, I was like, how do we not already know these things? Um, like how to grow it in the lab. So we work uh, primarily on lineages five and six, which are only found in West Africa. They grow microaerophilically and not aerophilically like the other tuberculosis ones. And we found that this is due to a lot of different things in their genome. So by, to get back to the first question you had, we can look at the genome in order to say, well, in central metabolism, it seems to be a little bit different. But testing that out is very, very difficult because you can test it in the lab, but lineages five and six grow even slower in the lab. And it doesn't always represent what we see in the, in the patient for sure. Well, in the patient, a lot of growth is in the macrophage as well, which Danny's done some really cool stuff looking at what TB eats within the macrophage. And then you've got the level of heterogeneity there as well. What, what macrophage are you looking at? So within the lung, you've got alveolar macrophages, you'll have naive cells coming in, you'll have so you'll have this huge heterogeneity in the macrophage population. Then you've got TB growing within that, and then there's extracellular TB. So there's this huge sort of variation as, as well just to throw another spanner in the works <laughs> yeah. yeah i am curious what if i mean a macrophage isn't a very pleasant place to be what does it eat <laughs> it's worse than that it lives in a phagosome so it's living not just within one membrane but then it goes and lives in in the phagosome so the very thing that's that's made to actually kill it and the the kind of i mean it, it there is a reasonable amount of different nutrients in that phagosome that it can eat. But the kind of dogma is that it's mostly eating sterols and fatty acids. Basically, what the macrophage does is in response to TB, it produces loads of sterols and, and that affects the immune system. So there's a bit of a thing that we always puzzle about is, is it eating these things as a sort of protective thing or does it really have to eat them? Certainly, if you stop it being able to eat fatty acids, it doesn't survive very well in a macrophage. Yeah, it does have access to a number of amino acids in addition to that. Yeah, I mean, TB is very fatty because it's got this bonkers cell wall I don't know. There's a famous paper. Paper it. It. it what is it called? The, the fat lazy bacteria. Yes. <laughs> it, it, it eats. It eats and it copes itself in. In a lot of its genome is dedicated to to genes involving fatty acids, biosynthesis, and fatty acid metabolism. But yeah, that's more or less been my strategy for coping with lockdown. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> Genomically, we've tried to look at this from comparative genomics and we look between the lineages and we see differences like in B12 and, and the use of pyruvate and all of this is important. But a, a difficulty with tuberculosis is we don't have a lot of neighboring species to compare it to that we have a lot of information, right? So we have the mycobacterium genus, but most of the, of the research has been done on mycobacterium tuberculosis. And as we can see from the discussion, even that's not giving the fundamentals. So we don't have a lot of nearby other pathogens that we can do comparisons to because most of the nearby pathogens are the environmental opportunistic pathogens of the mycobacteria. And they've all just been based on the assumptions of what we know in TB. And then you have to go pretty far to find another pathogen that maybe we know a lot about. So it, it's a lot of fundamental stuff that needs to occur to generate that data by itself. 
And by interrogating more whole genomes, we're able to get to that stage. And there's some really cool things, like, for example, BCG uh, and TB, we found metabolic differences that you can't actually explain by the genome. Probably not what we want to hear on this podcast, but, you know, that, that actually BCG has the same genes, but there's obviously something that's, you know, also happening, which means that BCG, despite having the right genes to to grow in whatever it is is behaving differently so work is moving to that to the transcriptome level and the proteome level now so we're getting there with the genome we're starting to move to long towards long reads and finding gene differences and stuff and now some people are getting that money thankfully to start looking at transcriptomes but we tried to do a transcriptome date you know work for something else on tb and we're like oh we'll just gather all the public data sets of it and it was just crickets there just was no public transcriptome data is really to work with. And then we need more people to generate them so we can start at least generating ideas of where we think things would be different. I want to just touch on that. The, the mycobacterium genus is a pretty mixed bag of all sorts in there. I mean, you've got leprae and you've got, you've got embovis that we've talked about. You've got ulcerins. You've got, what's that weird one? Smeg, smeg, Smegmatis. Yeah, it's used a lot in the lab. But... In terms of the mycobacterium tuberculosis complex, there's like a bunch in there. They're not something comparable. You can't, we can't borrow. I'm sure it would be nice to work on some of these other organisms to at least get out of the category three restriction. So leprae doesn't, you can't culture leprae. No. So you need a lot of uh, rabbits if you want to work with leprae. And it has a highly reduced genome because it lives intracellularly. Or squirrels, so, I think. I think maybe. I think red squirrels. Yeah, that's leprosy. Yeah. yeah. Smegmanus is used a lot in the lab, but an example is this B12. A paper came out recently that showed yes, smegmanus can do it. It can create its own B12, but tuberculosis cannot create its own. And they're still not even sure why, because a lot of the pathway is there in the genome, but it just doesn't do it at the end. It seems to import it. And then the questions we have is okay, who is it importing from? Because there's very few other bacteria that are living in these phagosomes with them. Like, so who's creating the B12 and the pyruvate and everything for the for the TB to... So we, we made a genome scale metabolic model of TB. And recently I had a fantastically talented scientist who came from Colombia and he basically created all the genome scale because we made the first one at Surrey and subsequently loads of people have made them. And B12 was really interesting because if you give the in silico genome scale model B12, it behaves more like TB does. So in the end, we decided to let it make B12. And one of the reviewers comments was exactly what you said. We don't think, of course, you know, that paper was really clever because all they did was just measure B12, didn't they? You know, mm. why nobody ever did that before? But I guess that doesn't, answer the question is there's in some special circumstances TB can make B12 because it has the whole set of genes to make B12. It is completely baffling, you know. So again, like a really fundamental, because B12 is really important for multiple pathways. So but the, the comparative genomics to the other opportunistic or obligate pathogens in the same genus becomes a circular thing because a lot of their genome-based things are based on the mycobacterium tuberculosis in the first place. 
or there's just not a lot of people working on it. I can I can probably list you all the people who work on Ultrans, like from a from a lab point of view, already because I've probably worked with them. So it's just not a lot of money in those as well either. So they can be difficult to do. Which would be the analog then outside of mycobacterium that that you would suggest is the closest in terms of its behavior? Behavior in what way, I guess? So, that, so one organism that was used as, to discover something useful was Rhodococcus. So Rhodococcus was used and it was the pre-work to discover that TB metabol- was able to metabolize cholesterol, which is, is quite a mad thing for a bacteria to be able to do. You know, this great big carbon molecule. And that pre-work was all done on Rhodococcus. So, you know, there is a group that do parallels. Rhodococcus is much more tractable in the lab. But other than that, I guess sometimes I look in carini bacteria on the genetic, I don't know if it's, got, you know, for, for, for annotations, for genes which are unannotated to see if there's homologs in carini bacteria. We've started to, to use some containment level two mutants as well, which are auxotrophic mycobacterium tuberculosis mutants that are made by um, Bill Jacobs' lab in New York. So we've started to use them because we look at um, a lot of um, microscopy, like live cell imaging of single cells. So that's impossible to do unless you've got really expensive equipment in the cat three, which we don't have. So we we have started to use some um, containment level two just on a separate um, separate side. So your, your closest genera are Nocardia, Rhodococcus, Corinibacteria, Gordonia. They're the other ones in the same family. It's, it's also pretty sparse around that area of the whole tree. But it's, it's getting better as more money is going in and we're able to do the genomes better and then at least pose questions to then go back in. We just need more people to uh, fund people like Danny and Susie. <laughs> to do the fundamental questions. Yeah, so Susie, uh, I think we haven't crossed to you. What what would be on your wish list then? Love looking at things at the, the single cell level. So I think a lot of the time by taking it, you miss out a lot of these really exciting individuals. You miss out a lot of these subpopulations that are, like Danny was saying, really important. So for me, it would be single, more single cell genomics in TB and also single cell transcriptomics. So I know that's very difficult in, in bacteria, but I'd love to see um, more of that. I think there's a lot of people who are now preparing to try it. Not a lot. Some people mm. are preparing to try to handle that bioinformatically mm. because uh, the difficulties are this culture bias that we require if we are going to be doing things in the lab. So there's kind of two directions that, that bioinformatics is going in TB. One is really trying to work more on the clinical sample side and be able to do genetics and bioinformatics quick in an easy way that's reproducible in the clinic by people who don't use bioinformatics tools, which I'm sure everybody has problems in all different pathogens with that. Then the other direction is how do we make sure we have the entire genome? And how do we know that we're not just missing some sections, which means more closed genomes, more long read genomes, and the proper processing and DNA extraction for those. It's the same as it is in other pathogens. It just feels like it's a little bit behind in some ways. So Connor, yeah, you just mentioned bioinformatic tools for public health. Could you talk about what's happening in that space and particularly genomic epi? Transmission linking in tuberculosis has a very long and convoluted history. So you would start off with insertion elements and then patterns of insertion elements in the genome and then matching them between two different patients and seeing if it has the same pattern, then you would say it's maybe in a transmission cluster. The spoligotyping that we talked about earlier with these CRISPR patterns 
we have a VNTR pattern-based ones that are in there called Miru VNTR. It can't just be called regular things. It always has to have its own mycobacteria in the name. And now we're using the whole genome. In the whole genome, the standard um, approach is to call SNPs against the H37RV reference genome, get the SNP distance between two different strains, and then if they're less than 5 or 12 SNPs, you're saying that they're in some kind of transmission cluster. Some people then have moved to, let's say, back a step, potentially back a step to core genome MLSTs directly from the genome, mainly a group in uh, Germany that are working on that and trying to do that for circulating strains. The SNP one has kind of become, the SNP distance has become the, the primary way of looking at it. It works quite well to find out what your circulating strains are, but not so well when you want to know exactly who infected whom because of the problem of the slow mutation race, you could have zero SNPs in a whole group of people. So in Rwanda, we have a transmission cluster that has been there since the 90s, and it's 12 SNPs apart between most of the different ones there causing most of the MDR-TB. So it's very slow mutations that are occurring in that time. We're moving more towards a Bayesian approach of looking at transmission-based, oh, some of us are, not all, using transmission approaches from Caroline Colin and Xavier Didelay to try to say, okay, well, we think there's these numbers in between, which take into account a generation time and take into account an infectivity period, which can model better the mycobacterium tuberculosis ones. But we indeed, again, going back to what we said, is we need to be a little bit more specific on what is that generation time? What is that latent or infectivity period to try to better inform our genomic approaches for looking at transmission. So we need that, that circularity of we can do better with transmission, but we need to know more about the underlying way that it is transmitted to then come back up to it. But in general, the SNP approach seems to work quite well because we don't have a combination because we don't have plasmids that are going to mess up a lot of those things. So working in enterics from, from my background, you're always at loggerheads with some of the pre-genomic genotyping methods. So serotyping is kind of, there's always like a love-hate relationship between things like serotyping. How is things like spoligotyping for MTB, like is that generally consistent with what people would see in a phylogeny or do you, do you all have the same kind of energetic enthusiasm about these methods that I do for, for other organisms? Spoligotyping is the one that persists for longest. And that is because it's less than a pound to do a spoligotype, and you can do 40 of them at one time. So when you're in a, a low resource country, you can bang out those spoligotypes really quickly and give you an idea of the lineages that are there. It will not tell you that if it's a transmission cluster, and that's difficult to try to get people to be on board with that, no matter how many papers I even personally publish about that. So it'll tell you very well that the main lineages that you have, lineages one to, to nine, and whether it's an animal one. But beyond that, it won't tell you, you have a lot of convergent evolution within those patterns. But again, there's the throw up between accuracy and cost. When you're just trying to look at what are the main things that are circulating, spoligotype can tell you that. And what we're trying to get people to move towards is, you know, spoligotype everything, and then the patterns that match maybe do something further on those ones. And if they don't match, maybe that's interesting as well, but that's two separate research questions. You know, if you have a new pattern, maybe we sequence that. And if we have things that are clustering a lot, maybe we sequence some of those to see if they are a transmission cluster. So there's a use for it, 
but it's not obviously going to be the be all and end all. I think what a lot of bioinformatics needs to do is marry those two together of not say don't do that, but say there's a use for that, but it is not everything that it was five or 10 years ago, but it can maybe point you in the right direction. Like a serotype can maybe point you in the right direction, but it's not going to tell you what we thought it did. I mean, the issue with serotypes is sometimes you do have these edge cases where it puts two things together that really shouldn't be together. And is that the case of swallowgotyping or you don't really it's, have it's Sometimes we'll put them together, but it's it's not as, we don't use this, the spologotype clinically as much as a serotype is done. It doesn't have this label of, now we treat in this way and it has these characteristics. But we discovered lineage eight because a weird spologotype came up in a routine thing. It just had none of the spacers that anything we'd ever seen before. And my boss back with the young at the time, she's just one of those people who has all the spologotype patterns in her head. And she went, that's not a spologotype that we know. <laughs> and then we just sequenced it and then it came up as a new lineage. So it, it has its use. That was just because we were going through. TB thankfully doesn't have this means this in terms of a spologotype pattern for most of them. Yeah. What we are seeing more is that things like, like Susie had said, you know, Bovis has intrinsic pyrazinamide resistance. Kennedy has that. And now we're working towards more a clinical taxonomy of can we better tell you from a label, from a lineage label, what potentially is going to be the issue with the treatment? And that's something that um, watch this space on, hopefully. I mean, I guess that's a silver lining there that you don't have that history because so much of the serology and genotyping is baked into government policy for other organisms. Mm. And that is something you always have to keep fighting that they do have to wrap people on the fingers for trying to find the same MLST type and saying like, oh, there's transmission between the cows and the farm hands. It's like, no, yeah. no, 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 no. And this is for E. coli, like it makes no sense. Mm -hmm. Back in the day, I used to work in diagnostics. The way we told if it was if it was bovis or, or MTB is we'd have one LJ slope with pyruvate in it and one without. And it was as simple as that, right? If it if it couldn't grow without pyruvate, it was bovis, and that's how you change the treatment. And that gets back to the kind of resource limited. It, it could come up with errors, but it's cheap as anything, right, to say that's probably bovis and that's not. And, and that's all you really want at the end of the day. Yeah. No, definitely there's that. Definitely there's scope for, for these methods, and they always will be. They're, they're useful and they tell you something informative. It, it becomes problematic when people tend to treat them as gospel. And mm -hmm. as Connor saying, like, you have this, then you must follow this. It must behave in this way. It's like, no, it's, it's, it's a microbe. It does what it wants. <laughs> you can't, yeah, so you can't categorize it. <laughs> also, it, it takes, it takes about a month for them to grow on those slopes. So we do need, we do know we need the sequencing. We need something before that, because by that point, the patient's already been given pyrazinamide and they've been on it for a month. And, you know, so we, we need, we need both. We need, we need the genetics straight away, which are fast and which will tell us what's happening. So any final comments from all of you? Anything you feel that has to be put out there in the community they have to be aware of? Well, I guess for me, the thing that we always say in the TB community that in the UK, it's, it's, it's very difficult to get funding for research into TB. Mm -hmm. And, you know, with a lot of the research funding being directed towards COVID, that we must not forget the other 
pandemics that are still going on and that's not just TB because you know part of the reason we we had such a difficult situation with COVID was you know lots of people who worked on coronaviruses actually lost their jobs because they weren't considered interesting so I think if the if the COVID crisis has taught us anything it's that we need a broad brush of research and it's certainly no time for complacency when it comes to mycobacterium tuberculosis and tuberculosis that would be my final so to, to add on to that what's interesting is that when the who released it, its top pathogen list mycobacterium tuberculosis wasn't on the list and that's because it's actually a star at the bottom that says tb is so far beyond all of these we thought it would just take up too much of the list <laughs> but the problem is that the funding agencies go it's not on the list so we're told that it's not on the top pathogen list and we should focus on the top pathogen list where the WHO says, oh, everyone knows. And it's like, not everybody knows. Actually, most people don't know that TB is killing as many as the entire rest of the list combined almost. That was the same with the AMR list as well, wasn't it? It's exactly the same. It was not on there. So it's, it's not on the AMR list either, yeah, despite yeah. it being half a million a year. Yeah, despite it being the, the top AMR pathogen, so yeah. All right. Well, that's all the time we have for today. This is part of our ongoing series to talk deeply about a particular microbe. And today we've been talking about mycobacterium tuberculosis. I want to thank our guests today, Drs. Susie, Danny and Connor for joining us. And we'll see you all next time on the Microbinvi podcast. Thank you so much for listening to us at home. If you like this podcast, please subscribe and rate us on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, or the platform of your choice. Follow us on Twitter at Microbinfi. And if you don't like this podcast, please don't do anything. This podcast was recorded by the Microbial Bioinformatics Group. The opinions expressed here are our own and do not necessarily reflect the views of CDC or the Quadrum Institute. <laughs>